In days gone by, we've used language in the church in this way. Doug, are you waving at me? Okay. In, in days that have gone by, we've talked in the church in this way. The pastor is coming to the platform to deliver the morning sermon as if it was crafted in his office and he's handing off a gift to give to the congregation. I don't know that that's a particular helpful way of looking at the sermon. And so I would like to confess something this morning, and that is, I need much more of your help. Preaching is a burden, um, one that's a part of my calling, but I require more of your help. And in, there are two particular ways I'd require your help. The first is this. I need you to be praying for me while I preach. I need you to pray and say to the Father, Help this guy say what we need to hear that is true to your word. Help this guy who's not particularly clever or not particularly bright, who has only experienced a very thin slice of life to be able to somehow say the things that will bring us to the presence of God and reveal God's truth to us in ways that help us. You need to pray that way for me all the time. The second thing is there's a reality in this room that is not helpful to me. And that is, if you sit under the balcony, your faces are in shadow. And especially on a day when the sun from the parking lot is coming in, the sun closes the iris of my eyes. And I can't really see the faces of anybody pretty much who sits behind where Chad is. It's just, you're just in shadow to me. And that means I don't really have a way to tell if you're tracking with me, if you understand me, if what I'm saying is making sense. And so I'd like to articulate a new routine, okay? When the kids leave, you move forward, okay? If you would get out from underneath the balcony, I could see you. And that would be a significant help to me in knowing whether what I'm saying is registering, if it's making sense, or if we're ships passing in the night, or how that works. And so if you would do that, now I understand there are some people who for medical reasons or because you have small children with you, you want to stay near the back door, no judgments are being made. But if it's possible for you to move forward so I can see your face, you will help this poor preacher, okay? So the instructions are over now to deliver the sermon? I don't know. We're moving towards the Gospel of Mark again. And there's a sequence of verses, chapters, stories here that have been speaking to me since my summer vacation. And I'd like to continue uh, in this little sequence. Mark is telling us specific things, thank you for moving, and showing us specific things. Jesus has demonstrated that he's a teacher of unusual wisdom, a teacher who has power to heal. He has, he has demonstrated in last Sunday's stories that he has power over the primal elements of creation. He's demonstrated that he has power over the spirit world, the demonic and the impressive. And we're going to hear one more story today 
about the demonstration of the power of Jesus. It's a two-part story, and it instructs us about the power of Jesus and the empathy of Jesus and the methods of Jesus. This is Mark 5, 21 to 43. Mark 5, 21 to 43. And I would invite you to stand for the reading of the gospel. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came. And when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered. And yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, Don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion, with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha koum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of the Lord. You may, you may be seated. Jesus is confronted by Jairus. This is an example of another person who seeks out Jesus, comes to Jesus. Jesus hasn't sought him out. Jairus is seeking Jesus. He demonstrates faith and compassion. Well, Jesus sees what's going on and he responds, goes along with Jairus to the place where his sick daughter is suffering. But on the way to the house, there's a critical interruption. There's an older lady, a woman who is poor. Jairus is not poor. A woman who is sick. Jairus is not sick. A woman who is a social outcast. 
Jairus is not a social outcast. He's the synagogue leader. A woman who was unworthy of healing in the eyes of her neighbors. Unlike Jairus, who every neighbor thought likely deserved to be healed. Or at least have his daughter healed. The old woman stops Jesus with her approach. She intervenes. She reaches out. She touches Jesus. And she's healed. We could spend a lot of time speculating about the nature of this healing. I mean, how can Jesus heal if he didn't intend to do it? I mean, how does power just go out of Jesus? Is there really power in Jesus' clothing? I don't think so. Or did Jesus really perform this healing? Perhaps this was an expression of his father who knew the woman's faith in Jesus and God the Father healed her through Jesus. We don't have any idea how this happens, why this worked. At some point, you almost say, is this healing in here to keep us from getting some neat equation about how healing works? Because this doesn't fit any of the models. What we do know is that Jesus stops and calls her out. Who touched me? He shouts. There's so many people crowded around him and the disciples. The disciples can't believe he would ask such an idiotic question. How can you ask who touched you? There's like a thousand people around you. They all touched you. I mean, what are you talking about, Jesus? They're not ready yet to assume that he knows things that they don't know. They haven't quite grown that far yet. But the lady realizes she's been caught. She's been find out, found out, and so she confesses. It's important to know that there is a significant risk in this confession. In the same way, there's a risk in all confession. Who wants to be found out? Who wants to be known? But healing comes through confession. Always healing comes through confession. She's ritually unclean and isn't supposed to be in the crowd at all. She's an outcast from society. By Jewish law, she is forbidden contact with other humans. She broke the law in order to be healed. Doesn't quite fit our categories, does it, of proper Christian behavior? Well, you know, she's not a Christian. She broke the law in order to be healed. And people, all those people who are pressed around Jesus, they're going to figure that out in about 30 seconds. The minute she confesses, everybody knows her crime, and everyone will be publicly offended. She broke the law. She deserves punishment. There's a risk in confessing. But she's willing to take the risk because of her desperation, and Jesus is compassionate. He confirms her healing. He corrects her. Daughter, it wasn't my clothing that made you well. It was your faith in me that made you well. It's your faith in Jesus that makes you well. And by addressing her as daughter, he reintroduces her to society, names her to be a member of his own family. He could have judged her right there. And the whole community would have shunned her and made her an outcast again. But Jesus' social embrace heals all of her wounds. 
But as soon as this is resolved for this older woman, the other shoe drops on Jairus. Your daughter is dead. If the master hadn't been delayed by this old lady, he might have made it to your house and healed your daughter. But she sort of imposed. She, she imposed her will on the Son of God and, and made him take care of her sorry old life. And so the little girl, who's only 12, dies. And Jesus responds by saying, Relax, fear not, only believe. Jesus is saying, Relax, I'm in charge, fear not. But, but what's he in charge of? How does he have the guts to say to a man whose daughter has just been pronounced dead to have faith? That's an audacious claim, isn't it? Don't grieve. Fear not. Believe. Can Jesus roll back the time, the hands of time? Is he really saying he has power over life and death? Well, we've seen that he has great wisdom and healing power, yes. We see that he has power over the elemental, creative spirits of nature. We know that he has power in the spirit realm, yes. But, but what about death? Well, we shall see. Jesus doesn't let the whole crowd enter the house. It's just he and his disciples who go in. And when they get to Jairus' house, the professional mourners who were required by Jewish law are already at the house crying and wailing as professional mourners are supposed to do. We assume the musicians are on their way. You had to hire at least one musician to have a proper funeral in that day. And when Jesus arrives, he asks the question of the professional mourners and those who are making lots of noise, why do you make a great commotion and weep? The girl's not dead, but she's sleeping. There are not too many places where Jesus gets laughed at in Scripture. Not too many places. He's mocked at his crucifixion, and he's going to turn the tables on that pretty quickly as well. But this is one of those times where the people hear what he has to say, and they just laugh. And you have to ask yourself, why are they laughing? Why do they, why do they laugh at Jesus? I can only come up with one reason. My suspicion is that they know what dead looks like. I mean, death is much more prevalent and more frequent at this time than it is ours. People didn't live as long. I mean, if you lived to 50 during this day and age, that was probably significant life expectancy. The infant and child mortality rate was huge. I think one of the reasons we're told that this girl is 12 is to let us know that she's on the threshold of adulthood, which means she had managed to escape all the threats to childhood, illness and injury and the rest. But they laugh at Jesus because they know death. They're firsthand acquainted with death. They've seen death. They've seen this little girl. They know she's dead. And if Jesus thinks she's not dead, he's clueless. And they laugh because they know death, but they don't know Jesus. They haven't figured that piece out yet. They don't really know who he is. For Jesus to suggest that they didn't know death 
was laughable to them. So they laughed. And Jesus enters the room with mom and dad and a few trusted disciples. He speaks the words. The girl rises, returned to her parents, who are told, give her some food. And everyone in the room is amazed. When Jesus stills the wind and the waves, the disciples are so astounded, they say, who is this that even nature obeys him? There aren't any recorded words in response to Jesus reaching out and taking the hand of this 12-year-old little girl. But what are they thinking? We're told they're amazed. Yeah, amazed. All those people who are laughing because they knew death, they've never seen anyone come back to life. This is completely new. I don't know exactly why Jesus tells the people in the room not to speak of the miracle. It may be that anything they could conceivably say would diminish the impact of the girl walking out of the room. Sometimes what you see speaks louder than anything that can be said. They don't speak, but the moment the people, the mourners outside the room see her walking, the moment all those people who laughed, who knew death, see her, the moment they understand that someone stronger than death is present, well, then they will know that they understand less than they thought they did. Let's be clear about why this story is here. Mark is telling us very pointedly that Jesus holds the power of life and death. It's exactly why Mark puts this story here. He's setting us up for the fullest display of God's power, which is resurrection. Remember, resurrection is more than resuscitation. They're two different things. Resuscitation is when someone comes back to their previous life. They were alive, they died, they're living again. They've been resuscitated, revived to their previous life. Resurrection is entrance into new eternal life. And so the life that I had is completed and I'm going to get a new body. I'm going to be a new person. I'm going to rise in Christ and be what I was designed to be in all of his creative majesty. So when Jesus is resurrected, he rises to a new kind of life. You know the descriptions of it in the New Testament. The disciples are meeting in a closed room. The doors are locked. All of a sudden, Jesus is there. How did that happen? We don't know. These bodies can't do that. His body apparently can. It's something different, resurrection. It's, it's the whole transformation of life into something new. And if Mark doesn't demonstrate to us, help us believe that Jesus has the power over this life, how will we ever believe that he has the power to receive us into a completely new and eternal life? Mark's making the case 
that Jesus is powerful, that he is able. But he is also making the case that Jesus is reliable and he is trustworthy. You know, it's one thing to know that a person likes you and is predisposed to help you in your, if you have trouble. That's one thing. I have brothers who I dearly love, and I know if I ever got into a jam, if I needed to borrow 20 bucks, I could always call on them. They are reliable. They like me. They're predisposed to help me. They're always in my corner. I can trust them. But it's not helpful to have brothers like that if what I need is something they don't have the power to deliver on, right? I mean, their resources are limited. Their abilities are limited. But if you can put both halves of that equation together, someone who loves you, someone who is able to help you regardless of what the need is, because it's already been demonstrated that he has power in every single arena where you could conceivably have a need, that's something useful. And that is who our Jesus is. He's one who loves you, who is predisposed to help you, who has your best interests at mind all the time, and who is completely unlimited in his ability to deliver what is best for you. He's reliable. He's trustworthy, and he wants to help you. But the question is, do you have any sense that you need his help? Do you rely on him? Or do you just figure that either A, everything that needs doing in my life I can do myself to the degree that it needs to be done, and B, if I can't do it myself, there's nothing to be done about it, so I might as well just give up and accept the consequences of what's happened. There are lots of Christians who live that way, who live continually assuming they don't need to rely on anybody, or if there are situations they can't resolve themselves, they just have to accommodate whatever life has for them, and they forget that there is a God who invites them into relationship with them, who's interested in what's happening in their lives, who wants to hear what they have to say, who wants to be an active part in their lives. And the question is, will you trust him in those areas or not? Are you just always going to settle for what is? And candidly, I'm a little tired of settling. I'm a little tired of assuming that if I don't see something happening, that nothing's happening or assuming that God's not able to help in this situation. We're going to get to a place in a few chapters where Jesus hits his own town, and it says there that he wasn't able to perform very many miracles there because the people knew him as a little kid, and they didn't believe he could do anything. They, they couldn't see beyond Jesus at 12. And they couldn't understand who he was. And because their imagination was limited by what they thought they knew of Jesus, they didn't have faith on him for who he could be in their lives. And if we don't have faith to believe who Jesus can be to us, we're always stuck with our own resources. We're always stuck settling. And I don't think we ought to do that. This Jesus is reliable. 
This Jesus is powerful. This Jesus is the one who calms the storm on the Sea of Galilee and can calm the storm in us. He's the one who can heal those who are sick and can heal us. He's the one who can calm the demoniac who breaks his own chains and can liberate us from all of our chains. Jesus has the power of the whole spirit world. Anything that enchains you, anything that has entered your life or you have allowed to enter your life that keeps you from being fully open to God, he can break those chains. We have to believe that he can. And we have to trust him actively. We have to pray in those kinds of ways. Or we're never going to get past ourselves and we're never going to grow to be the people Jesus died to make us. This morning, the, the question I have for you is simple. Will you trust him? Will you trust him? Having identified the biggest frustration in your life, the biggest fear in your life, the biggest concern in your life, are you willing to take that to Jesus and say, Lord, I don't know what I can do here, but I ask you to help me. I ask you to show me the way forward here. Not only do I ask you, I submit myself to cooperating with you in whatever ways you ask me to cooperate. So if there are things I have to do, I am, I am surrendered to you and I will do what you ask me to do in this particular area. It may be that he asks you to humble yourself so that you can hear from others about a situation or to humble yourself so you can listen for the voice of his spirit or to stop watching X television program so there's enough silence for him to speak into your life or to let this activity go because you're frantically pursuing it and there's no margin in your life for him to speak. I don't know what he may ask you to do. He may say, the fact that you don't pray means we never have a conversation, so how do you expect to hear me speak? And he may be saying, you need quiet time in front of me if you're going to receive from me what you need in this particular area. But unless you begin to trust him, to submit your fear, your frustration, your difficulty, your brokenness to him, will you ever be healed? Our resources aren't adequate. We shouldn't accept the status quo and assume that that's all that God has for us. He's the one who's able to do more than we can ask or imagine. So as soon as we get into the realm of faith and begin to trust him, he may have solutions and resolutions far superior than anything we had hoped for. But we never get to his best if we can't relinquish what we've got our hands on. Will, will you trust him? Will you trust the eternal God who Mark tells us has power over creation, has power over the spirit world, has power over life and death and all illness? The one who Mark will tell us has the power of resurrection.
as well. Will you trust him? We pray with you this morning. We're going to sing a song in a moment that helps us crystallize this question, but with our eyes closed as we consider the words of the gospel this morning, I would ask you this question. What area in your life do you need to hand over to the Father, to Jesus, to the Holy Spirit, and say, Lord, I need to trust you in this area because I'm not managing this well. Not handling this well at all. Don't know what's best to do, but Lord, today, on the 8th of September, I'm going to choose to trust you. And I'm going to do whatever you ask me to do in order to demonstrate my trust to you in this area. Have that conversation with the Father. You may want to have that conversation kneeling at our altar, if it's space that you need, a place free of distractions. You may want to have that conversation seated with your eyes closed. You may want to have that conversation while you stand and sing with us. But please have that conversation. Father, help us to respond to what your Spirit is saying to us. Pray in the name of Christ. Amen. May you have the wisdom to trust in God and to truly believe that he is able to do more than we can ask or imagine. That we might see him work in our lives that the world may know Christ. Amen.